Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm Lillian Barger, co-host of the channel. This segment is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Sarah Iago is an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University and the author of The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America, published by Harvard University Press. Iago provides a legal and social history of the idea of privacy and how it was first evoked challenge written into law and reinterpreted by ordinary citizens the age of mass marketing and social media. Once the right of elite citizens to protect their reputations, the growth of the bureaucratic state, communications technologies, and the inquiries of experts brought the issue of privacy into view for many more Americans. First defined by legal experts as the right to be left alone in bodily, mental, and emotional aspects, By the end of the 20th century, privacy came to mean the right to control one's public narrative. Americans have swung from seeking seclusion in increasingly secured homes to tell-all public confessions. They reflect a dilemma between the desire to be left alone and the need to be known. Igo has shed light on why Americans are so conflicted about privacy, navigating the treacherous terrain of the state, the market, and their own desire for connection, security, and visibility. Here is my conversation with Sarah Igo. Now let me introduce you to Sarah Igo. Sarah, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, your book is so timely because everybody's thinking about privacy. There's such a big issue in the public's mind and you know how, how people define it and what they think is private and what isn't private is still in negotiation. Mm-hmm. And, so, and you have, your book is just chock full of ideas about legal concepts and also cultural ideas about what privacy is and what it's not and how you extend those boundaries and how you bring them in and try to secure some, you know, space for yourself. But for, before we get into all that, I want you to t- talk to us about where you came from, your background, and how you came to write The Known Citizen, and why privacy, what got, got your imagination going that you'd want to write this book? Okay. Um, I have to dredge up some old history for that, because uh, I've worked on this book for a really long time. Um, in fact, it's been kind of funny um, that the book came out when it did, along with a whole bunch of fresh privacy scandals, uh, because uh, everyone did keep saying, you know, this book is so timely, but all I could think about was how long I've been working on it. <laughs> um, the um, the book, I guess, I, I started down the road of privacy um, in uh, a way out of my last book, uh, which was a book about survey technologies um, and statistics in the 20th century. Um, and one of the kind of less um, explored avenues uh, or roads that I took in that um book was a question about privacy. It was about why people would be willing to um, give up information about themselves to strangers um, in the context of polls and surveys and things like that. Um, 
And it was clear to me that people, uh, you know, accommodated themselves to these new technologies um, in certain kinds of ways. Um, But I couldn't find very much um, discussion of that, of how people change their minds about that line between public and private. You know, how did they decide it was okay to tell a pollster about their political opinions or a... um, surveyor like Alfred Kinsey, uh, you know, pretty uh, intimate um, secrets about their sexual behavior. So um, I think that was the initial kernel of thinking about this book. Um, I didn't know that it would lead up, I mean, in all the directions that it did in this particular project, but um, but I uh, it, it did lead me in lots of directions uh, because as you say, privacy is a really big topic and it encompasses many different facets of life. Um, and so, uh, you know, and so that's why it took me a long time to get my head around it. Well, uh, since this is a history, we need to start in the 19th century and think about how did America in the 19th century think about privacy and what began to change uh, that concept. Can you talk a little bit about what it looked like in 19th century America? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, you know, I'll do that with the big caveat that um, privacy is one of those concepts, uh, well, really like probably any concept that not everybody thought about in the same way. Um, uh, and so uh, trying to figure out um, a, a kind of narrative history of how Americans have thought about privacy is really tricky for that reason. Um, nevertheless, we can find um, some really important pivots and, and changes, I think, in how Americans debated privacy, argued about it, thought about it. Um, in the late 19th century, um, actually, the first thing to say is that in the early 19th century, Americans didn't talk that much about privacy. Um, really, all the way up through the Civil War, um, uh, Americans certainly must have thought about privacy, but they didn't talk about it very um, uh, 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 energetically as a kind of political topic or as a political debate. Um, this would really change in the late 19th century um, when, um, for a bunch of reasons, new technologies uh, and new um, media and communications um, networks form, uh, the government uh, and its presence in American life is growing, corporate uh, power is growing, all of these things come together. Um, in uh, the late 19th century to produce a kind of privacy panic. Um, and um, I can I can say more about that, but um, but the, the kind of privacy that was being challenged um, in that period was was really a kind of elite and bourgeois privacy. It was a privacy of um, elite uh, white men um, largely and their families, uh, people who believed that they had a uh, right to a certain um, border around their personal affairs, a right to manage their own reputation. Um, and um, it was property too. It was um, actually, you know, one's home and surroundings and possessions. And, um, and that, that all of that really marked the way privacy was thought about um, in the first instance, I'd say in the late 19th century. And it starts, um, that notion of privacy really starts um, getting challenged by new, um, uh, more virtual uh, kinds of technologies of invasion, uh, wiretapping, photography, um, uh, tabloid journalism, and the like. Now, people, besides the elite people who thought of privacy basically sort of a privilege, their privilege of guarding their reputation, uh, ordinary yes. people, most people, uh, were living, I would say, probably in tight quarters. Um, yes. And what would and there were what were the boundaries between, uh, you know, children and parents, parents and their children, and other people that are in the household, the servants in their household. Even in in the South, you would have slaves who were in the household. 
And I'm wondering if, if in that situation, how, if there, if there was any kind of concept in the home of privacy, or was it basically the male head of household sort of set the boundaries of (laughs) where he was going to be and who, where everybody was going to be. I mean, I'm just kind of wondering about that because I'm thinking about uh, people in other countries where people live in, you know, lots of people in a, in a small house, uh, their concept of privacy Mm -hmm. within the, within the home is very, there's really not much privacy. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and um, certainly architecture and space and even the design of um, apartments and homes and family rooms versus private spaces in the house is a, a really rich area for thinking about privacy. Um in the late 19th century United States, at least in the urban United States, I would say um, there was um, a certainly a well-developed sense of household privacy by um, the late 19th century, but this was um, a kind of um, collective um, privacy for the household and certainly most um, aligned um, with the uh, the male head of house. Um, so uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, uh, you know, the great economist, uh, would say that um, privacy in the home was a kind of aggregate privacy, which in fact allowed no individual privacy at all, at least for the women and children of the house. Um, uh, and this this will begin to change uh, for sure uh, in the 20th century, both um, because of house design, um, but, but also because of the kind of articulated privacy rights of different um, members of the family. And also because of new findings in psychology, uh, for example, that private space was really important to human development and so forth. So all of this will change. But um, in the late 19th century, I would say that that sense that Gilman had of aggregate privacy was really about the the household privacy was about the male head of households privacy um, with um, that was supervised, um, but but probably, um, you know, quite uh, infringed uh, (laughs) upon um, uh, for the other members of the household. Which which brings me to something you you talk about later in your book about the fact that feminists in the 1960s really uh, attacked the whole idea of this private home because they felt that it was a domain that was controlled by men and you didn't know what was going on in there, you know, in terms of uh, a, a domestic abuse or what all kinds of things that can happen inside a very private space that men controlled. Yes, exactly. Um, and it, it that begins to expose, you know, the complexity really of privacy, because it um, it's not about any single line, <laughs> right, that clearly no. delineates an outside and an inside or a public and a private. There are lines within lines, you know, and kind of nests within nests of privacy. And um, yes, one of the great contributions of feminists and feminist um, thought in the 60s and 70s, along with the gay liberation movement, was uh, to name privacy as, um, you know, not only a good as sometimes a bad, right? As something that covered up, that cloaked uh, various kinds of um, uh, male domination, male power and violence. Um, and it will, uh, you know, shift the conversation in a really different um, direction. Right. Thereafter. The, yeah. The idea that the, uh, the personal is political. Right, right, exactly. Which we, you know, now see as a kind of uh, a slogan of women's liberation, but, um, and, and maybe too easily just pass by, but, but that, that, ins- that was a radical um, insight and a radical change in the way, I would say, that Americans thought about and talked about privacy. You know, to have privacy 
um, as both, again, a kind of social good, but as also a cloak, right, that sometimes needed to be torn away, ripped away, uh, whether it was from, you know, the male um, privilege in the household or the federal government's, um, you know, ability to keep secrets from citizens, uh, you know, this idea that that privacy um, was double-edged, I suppose, uh, was a, a really important um, pivot in, um, in the debate around privacy in the 60s and 70s. Right. And also, the uh, I think now we still have battles over a parental control of their children, you know, within the yes. home, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, educational control within the home, discipline control within the home. And, you know, there's a, a, still a war about that. You know, uh, how much do parents have a right to basically deal with their children in the home, in the privacy of the home as they see fit? Um, yes, which right, is a, and it right. becomes sort of you know the government is intruding into our our private life, and I think that I think this is this whole thing of just the 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 home itself. You could just write a whole book on just that. <laughs> yes, yes, no, exactly. Or about children's rights to privacy, you know, which is something I touch on pretty lightly in this book. I mean, one of the things I discovered in writing it was that the topics that you could write about um, are endless. You know, um, every talk I gave about this project as I was writing it, you know, opened up new doors to new things. So so at some point, of course, you have to stop. No, I know. But, um, yes. It's like your book. You actually, it was like your book is like two books within one because the first part of the book seems to be more administrative law, uh, bureaucracies, you know, that sort of thing. And then you change registers in the last part of the book where you really are talking about uh, the culture aspect of it. That's how it just rang to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I don't think of it as in exactly that way, but you're right. I mean, I was trying to, what I was trying to do, you know, when I started this project, I thought what I really want to get to in this book is not a kind of legal or technical kind of debate about privacy, right? but something more cultural and more rooted in everyday experience. Um, it turns out that, you know, that's really hard because whose everyday experience are you tracking? Uh, where does it surface? What, where's the archive? You know, um, but I did try to preserve that sense of um, the many different domains, I guess, in which um, privacy was being debated and argued and um, remade in the process. Right. And, and so yeah. I moved from, yeah, government governmental institutions, to suburbia, to, um, you know, television, to databases, and try to kind of migrate as I saw the public debate migrate. Well, yeah, and it also seems, it seems like the, we know that the law, even the cases you talk about, even the administrative stuff at the very beginning of the first part of the book, it's really uh, a product of what was happening to real people. So it's a yeah, so right. the law is reflecting right. cultural change, and uh, so I want to talk about want to go on, and so we have all these things happening in the late nineteenth century, like photography, and I never thought about it. You know, people running around taking pictures of people they don't know, and then using their images for advertisements. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. wow, <laughs> you know, we now we know that <laughs> if you want to take a stranger's photograph, you have to kind of ask them if you can take their picture. You don't just take their picture. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things um, that's really um, struck me after finishing this book uh, was how central uh, the personal image and um, photography was to this whole story about contestations over privacy. Um, so in the late 19th century, uh, as you say, you know, um, these uh 
instantaneous uh, cameras arrive. It allows people to take pictures of other people uh, without their knowledge um, and to circulate them. Um, sometimes selling them, sometimes actually uh, putting those uh, images uh, into um, the newspaper or uh, into advertisements. Um, so one of the, the really amazing cases from 1902 in New York uh, was a woman who sued um, because her image had been used to advertise um, flour. Um, and the only way she learned about this was she saw her own face on a neighbor's bag of flour. So it's not just that they hadn't asked permission, um, but... Um, um, they uh, hadn't alerted her to the fact that her face was going to be on thousands of um, placards and um, uh, posters and um, things, you know, around town as well as uh, on the product itself. Um, and she sued out of, you know, deep embarrassment about commercializing her image, something that would have would have been thought uh, to be improper and so forth. So, so that was an early instance. Um, of uh, the camera and the image um, being really um, important to privacy conversations and would lead, uh, in fact, to some of the first um, state laws um, offering a right to privacy for individuals um, and a right to sue uh, for the unlawful use of their image. Um, but of course, you know, kind of echoes um, through the 20th century and um, uh, all the way to um, the present day, in fact, in thinking about facial recognition, um, you know, who owns uh, one's image? Is it, um, you know, Facebook or Google or one of the companies that has, you know, successfully been able to use facial features to identify people or to law enforcement that can gain access um, to uh, one's image in this way and use it to track people? Uh, or is it still some how um, a possession of the person. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that was a long answer to your question, but it's, um, it's a really fascinating history. And just, again, that's just one strand, right, of this evolving discussion Americans have had about the line between public and private. And now we consider your, your personal image being sort of yes, part of your right, brand. Right. Okay. It, it's, you know, and uh, lots of people, you know, consulting people about how to brand yourself and having a brand. And part yeah. of it is how you look yeah. and and your, your image. So so you've got that. You also have the telephone, which is really interesting because, you know, the party line system where many people could hear what other people were saying. This was also an yes, issue of privacy. Right. Uh, so the telephone introduced a number of different things. I mean, one was wiretapping uh, and the real ease uh, with which both uh, criminals and law enforcement officials, um, uh, with the ease with which they could uh, tap into, you know, ostensibly private conversations. Um, the other was exactly this um, the party line system where usually four households were connected um, to a line and um, one could uh, just, you know, pick up one's own uh, handset and listen into other people's conversations. There's another dimension to this as well, um, which is just what the new technology allowed and um, to be said more casually and in an unchaperoned way. Um, and one of the uh, real fears about the telephone um, as uh, social historians have documented was that, um, you know, men and women, young men and women, especially, you know, were talking to each other uh, in ways that might've been improper. So, so, all of these technologies, you know, they, they did things as technologies, but they were important because they reshaped uh, social norms, um, social expectations of privacy, um, behavior that um, might look uh, like impropriety. Uh, and um, and so the, the history of technology really, you know, intersects in interesting ways with um, with privacy discussions. 
So at the end of the uh, 19th century, you begin to talk about the, the whole idea of uh, privacy l- being legally defined, and you've got some m- some legal scholars intervened in that. So was privacy a right mm. that was invented? So um, the uh, the claim has often been made that um, uh, two jurists, uh, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis, um, invented the right to privacy in um, 1890 in a short essay they wrote for the Harvard Law Review. Um, of course, they didn't really invent a right to privacy. Um, they um, did, I think, capture a kind of um, growing unease about the um, spaces for privacy in American society. And they were responding specifically to some of the things we've just been discussing. They were uh, responding to a more aggressive press that was publishing personal details uh, about men of reputation, especially. Um, They were also responding to um, photography and um, what they called mechanical devices for recording um, conversations. Um, and they, um, what they argued was that uh, there really already was a right to privacy um, in the common law, and it needed to be brought forth and clarified in an age in which um, it seemed that new technologies of publicity were really infringing upon it. So even they didn't really say that they were inventing a right to privacy, but their claim would be taken up by lots of different people, including people uh, early on in state um, uh, lawsuits uh, around uh, particular this question of, um, of their image or reputation um, being um, taken um, by someone or, um, or not exactly stolen, but being used um, by another party. So what, the, their, what was their, def- their definition was that you talk about in the book is the right to be left alone. That's right. Which yeah. I loved. I thought, oh my God, I love that. <laughs> it's so simple. It's simple. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's so simple. And yet, of course, it it isn't, uh, because they didn't mean in all situations, someone should be able to be left alone. And in fact, they made a distinction between um, public men, um, and everybody else, they said some people, you know, they do have um, their, their affairs uh, should be scrutinized, because they have placed themselves in public roles. You know, they were thinking about um, various kinds of political leaders, maybe business leaders as well. Um, but, um, but others, you know, took it to mean other things. Um, and um, a- a- another key part of Warren and Brandeis's definition was that this had to do not simply with one's um, uh, reputation, um, even, but had to do with what they called the inviolate personality, uh, some sense that one had of oneself, um, and a space around that self um, that needed to be t- to have that space in order to be um, really a, uh, a, a full and a developed person. So a psychological concept starts to creep in um, to the notion of privacy in the late 19th century, prompted by, um, again, these new technologies that seem to, to invade or um, press so forcefully on the person. So then we'd start getting into the, the, the really into the 20th century when the, the bureaucratic states begins to grow and the government begins to want to, you know, make sure we we know who we you know who our citizens are and you've got fingerprinting and birth certificates and censuses and all kinds of things you know and what's interesting was that you said was that one third of people during world war ii did not have a birth certificate 
That's right. Birth certificates really is amazing to think about now. Um, I mean, actually, the U.S. state um, compared to its European peers was far, far behind um, in terms of its documenting of its own people and its own citizens. So, yes, and and it's a problem, a recurring problem, actually, for the U.S. state in trying to um, enlist uh, soldiers in wars, for example, or even to give out Social Security benefits. I mean, Social Security was itself a documented enterprise, right. right, to give everybody social security numbers. But uh, people needed to list their birth dates. And in order to prove, you know, that they were how old uh, that they said they were, right, they needed a birth certificate. So this whole layering of, um, of bureaucratic documents, which is uh, is pretty, uh, pretty poor <laughs> in the United States, you know, becomes more of a problem in the 20th century when other programs develop. But yes, that's and today, if you don't, if you don't have a birth certificate yeah, today, that's right. you don't exist. I mean, exist. almost in the way that if you don't have a social security number, you don't exist. That's right. That's right. Right. Okay. So you've got this and this raises, you know, all kinds of issues. People begin to see that, you know, you're being fingerprinted and you have a birth certificate. And when you get married, you know, that's recorded. Uh, and then all of a sudden uh, we have the, the new deal and we have social security system uh, being implemented and that it, that chapter was extremely interesting because we don't really think about how huge that project was to assign, you know, social security numbers uh, uh, for individual people. And this was a big controversy about are you is a number of the account or is it the number of the person or is the government giving us numbers? And I just thought that whole. Uh, I never even oh, thought well, about it. Thank you um, for that. Yeah, I, I also uh, was just fascinated by thinking about that project. You know, when you compare uh, the rollout of Social Security to something like the Affordable Care Act, for example, I mean, it's just amazing the scope of the project to um, give numbers and to create files uh, for workers, 26 million of them in 1936. Um, in um, 28 days, this was essentially accomplished. Um, you know, not every last worker had registered by then, but but most of them had um, without computers. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a totally amazing um, feat. And um, it, of course, uh, speaks to the, uh, the growth of the U.S. welfare state, the growth of bureaucracy in the United States. And what intrigued me from a privacy angle was exactly the question you just laid out, you know, um, what did it mean to suddenly be visible in that way to the state to, uh, for those workers enrolled in the program to have their uh, working life, um, their, you know, address and their relevant details, but also their work history, sometimes eventually their health history, you know, known to and recorded by the government in order to be eligible for benefits. Um, so there was controversy about being numbered. Um, the Social Security Administration, the board at that time, uh, was really sensitive to that question. Um, but, uh, but in fact, uh, one of the surprises of my research was how uh, readily Americans seem to make that trade, you know, a, a number for a, uh, for this promise of future benefits and for economic security. It was interesting the way the Social Security Board had couched the whole thing and how they talked about it to kind of alleviate people's fears that this was some kind of government plot to control their lives and and turned it into sort of some kind of positive thing. And the fact that they gave people these little pieces of paper with a number on it mm -hmm. and saying this is not an identification, yeah. you know, this is not to be used for personal identification. But, you know, right now, now we know that Social Security numbers are used all the time as as uh, identification 
for personal identification reasons. Yes, of course. And that's created the whole problem we have today. The fact that our social security number links um, up so much uh, sensitive information about us, right? Financial as well as uh, right. everything else. Um, so Predators, more, you yes, know, mortgage. Exactly. I mean, uh, it's on medical records. Yes. They ask you for your social security number. And I've, you know, in the last few years, I've gotten very skeptical about giving people, even in, you know, doctor's offices, my social security number. Why do you have to have that? Can't you just assign a number, a record number to me? It bothers me, you know, that everybody has my social security number. <laughs> so uh, talk about the Griswold versus Connecticut case decision, which is, uh, was very critical uh, in terms of privacy. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the 1965 case, Griswold v. Connecticut, was, um, in my, to my mind, <laughs> uh, actually kind of a strange case um, uh, for the Supreme Court um, and for privacy. It, it did establish for the very first time um, the right to privacy as a constitutional right in the United States, which is really late in a way, 1965, considering that Americans had um, had, you know, uh, almost uh, a century of uh, public debate about privacy rights. Um, but those were at the kind of the state level and at the torts level rather than the constitutional level. Um, and the case itself um, dealt with a very particular uh, kind of privacy. It dealt with um, the right to use contraceptives and specifically the right to use contraceptives um, in um, a married couple. Uh, and so what was uh, established in 1965 was a right to marital privacy um, in the use of contraceptives. So uh, responding to an old, really antiquated Connecticut law that, uh, that banned uh, birth control and contraceptives um, of, all set, uh, of all kinds. So that was the case, uh, obviously drawn very narrowly, um, responding uh, to uh, you know a very particular kind of instance. Um, and um, what I found most interesting about it um, in in thinking about it through the lens of other uh, research I was doing was that it didn't really seem to respond to anybody's worries about privacy. I mean, yes, it responded to um, the uh, lack of availability of uh, contraception, but it did not. But um, the right of married people to conduct their sexual relations as they wish was not a high concern <laughs> of most Americans. Now, if you talk about non-heterosexual couples and their rights to privacy, that was a pressing concern for a lot of people um, or any number of other uh, kinds of ways in which um, the, the media, the state, uh, one's own neighbors, um, uh, commercial marketers were intruding on people's privacy. Those were much more pressing issues, but the case didn't address those, of course. It dealt with only the state's interference in the marital relationship. And this, what, what year this was, was this? 1965. Yeah. So, and, and so was this case a case that kind of opened up, okay, um, homosexual rights, uh, to privacy, it would, it would it eventually, but it wouldn't for quite a long time. Um, the the um, chain of cases that Griswold is most closely associated with are uh, reproductive uh, rights cases. So um, uh, Griswold and then um, uh, Eisenstadt uh, v. Baird, which uh, gave that same right to um, contraceptive use to um, non-married individuals, and then. Um, uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, so that was kind of the chain of cases um, uh, in terms of reproductive freedom that Griswold opened up. Uh, many people at the time in 1965 thought Griswold would open up lots of other things, um, would uh, put a ban on um, wiretapping and eavesdropping, for example, uh, using that idea of kind of intimate privacy or conversational privacy um, of a husband and wife as its um, model. Um, 
but uh, that did not quite come to pass. And Griswold uh, kind of came became known for and and um, limited in a way in its um, use in uh, reproductive freedom, and then eventually uh, sexual freedom cases, but not really until um, the um, the turn of the twenty first century. So in the 1960s, though, you have a lot more concern about about privacy in terms of uh, in terms of the of the federal mm-hmm. government intruding on people's lives. And one thing you talk about is the fact that uh, welfare recipients, uh, people who who are dependent upon some kind of social safety net, that their right to privacy was much smaller than you know, the middle class. Yes, that's right. And actually what's interesting, um, that had always been true. Um, I mean, privacy really does have this kind of class profile all the way through. But in the 1960s, you see a kind of recognition of that and a debate about it um, within the welfare rights movement and advocates for the poor who say, well, just because, you know, um, uh, recipients of uh, various kinds of uh, welfare and federal aid are getting that aid. Uh, shouldn't they have the same rights to privacy, the rights to um, a kind of secure border around their home um, as other Americans? Um, so it's uh, it's certainly true that this is a, a right, the right to privacy that's doled out quite um, unequally and unevenly. Um, there is in the 60s a push to rethink the privacy rights of uh, the most uh, disadvantaged and dispossessed in the society of prisoners, as well as welfare recipients, um, children, juveniles, uh, soldiers, even. So there's a, a moment in the 60s of uh, a, a quite broad rethinking. And Griswold is part of that. Um, it's part of the, um, the kind of move in the courts to um, individualize uh, and um, codify new kinds of rights uh, for all citizens. Um, and it but it's also its its limits uh, sort of um, catalyze even more uh, thinking, I would say, about who really in the United States has uh, and should have a right to privacy. Now, the other thing that we uh, that you talk about a lot and has to do with in the 1960s and 70s is the the social science and what was happening with social science in terms of them study uh, scientists mm-hmm. studying uh, individual behavior, not just sexuality, but all kinds of behaviors and attitudes, and and doing it in ways that uh, became very very controversial. And one of the uh, p- people you talk about is Lod Humphrey's uh, mm-hmm. social science study, the tea room trade and his methods and getting that information and doing that research. I thought that was fascinating. Oh, great. That so- yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the social science had to really think about, it wasn't an easy question. They felt that uh, they were doing things in the pursuit of knowledge, which was going to help the whole society. We need to understand who we are. And, but in doing that, a lot of what we would now consider intrusions into privacy, uh, you know, was done. So can you talk a little bit about social science and how they developed their set of ethics? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, this is, um, you know, uh, when I um, finally figured out that this book about privacy was about um knowledge uh, was about knowing people uh, and what limits there should be on knowing citizens. Um, That's when um, a few things fell into place. And one of them was how essential, actually, the social sciences were to thinking about these debates, even though we don't necessarily always um, include them as uh, social scientists and researchers as violators of privacy, right? We think of the state and we think of commercial entities, um, I think, first and foremost. 
But there were huge debates in the social sciences, um, both because they were becoming more prominent and better funded, um, uh, but also because they were becoming more intrusive, frankly, um, and ambitious in their efforts to understand and know human behavior in the 20th century. Um, So um, in uh, the 1940s and 50s, you see this with the real takeoff of personality testing um, and motivational research and advertising, which um, uh, asked uh, people... uh, uh, you know, willingly or unwillingly, you know, very deep and personal questions about themselves in order to, uh, you know, for, uh, apply when they were applying for a job or for a promotion at work uh, or in the schools. Um, in the 1960s, you see um, academic uh, sociologists and psychologists um, really pushing the envelope in terms of their techniques um, and how they're going to uh, discover human truths, um, including a lot of use of deception, um, of uh, assuming a false identity or infiltrating a group without their knowledge to uh, study them so that they don't, um, uh, the social scientists didn't disturb the situation, as they would say. Um, so Laud Humphreys was a really fascinating case of uh, a sociologist um, in the uh, a student uh, in the mid-60s who decided um, that he really wanted to uh, pr- do a, an ethnography of gay uh, male public sex in um, public restrooms um, in, uh, in in various kind of well-known spots that uh, he designated uh, tea rooms. So he called his book Tea Room Trades. Um, and so he observed men in the process of um, having oral sex. He charted their movements. Uh, he took down their license plate numbers in order um, to later, uh, under disguise, interview them uh, because most of them or many of them were married men with families. And, um, and so he found another pretext to interview them. Uh, so this is a very bold, uh, maybe brave, uh, kind of study um, using the tools and the ethos, I would say, of a new kind of um, aggressive social science. Um, and he would be uh, showered with praise uh, initially for this research, um, for what it allowed him to say about uh, both public sex and the performance of um, uh, certain kinds of identities. Um, but then he was quickly um, attacked, really, um, for um, invasion of privacy now, Sarah, you, you just talked about Laud Humphreys and the tea room trade and, and that the whole effect on social science, how social science had to kind of rethink the, its ideas about how it's going to do its work. And, there, you know, social science is amassing a great deal of inf- private information. And so is the government. But there's also something else happening in culture at the late in the late 60s. And the idea that to be an authentic person and to be part of society, uh, you, you wanted to kind of let it all hang out. And so there's that counterculture ethic that's coming through uh, that sort of wants to dismiss these boundaries of privacy that we um, have been so dear to hold on to. Can you talk a little bit about the shift? There's a, a, the shift in popular culture at that time. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things going on in the 1960s and 70s um, that are hard to sort out. But it's, it's really fascinating, um, at least to me, (laughs) to think about what um, exactly, as you say, you know, the way things seem to be moving in different directions at the same time. So in the same period that um, Americans, um, and and not just Americans, I should say, people around the world are getting really nervous about databanks, for example, and the amount of information about them that's in um, 
files and increasingly um, on computer hard drives. Um, they also um, seem to be revealing more about themselves. Um, and this is really clear when you start looking into um, popular culture, into political campaigns, into um, new um, media formats um, in uh, the later 60s and early 70s, when it seems to become a kind of imperative um, to reveal things that people wouldn't have revealed before. Um, so one of the examples that I talk about a lot in the book um, uh, is the first uh, real uh, reality television show um, of uh, American history, a, a program called An American Family that aired in 1973 on PBS and um, allowed um, a, a kind of view into the private affairs of a family who themselves allowed cameras to come in and observe their most private moments and then present them to a national TV audience. Um, the television show itself was a huge um, hit. It got uh, huge audiences for a documentary um, and um, occasioned a lot of press um, uh, and a lot of dismay, actually, about um, how loose uh, the Loud family um, uh, was with um, personal matters, letting their fights and um, disagreements and um, family uh, dirty laundry to, uh, to hang out uh, there in front of a national audience. So now one of the things about the Loud family was uh, how they, in effect, were performing for the camera. And there had a lot of repercussions for that family. There was divorce. There was a, a son who came out as a homosexual during that period. And all this, the whole America's watching all this. And how, how do you think that fed into the idea that you're really not, you don't really exist. You're really not real if you, unless you're on TV. Mm, yeah, uh, you know, I think we see that today um, so often, or we hear that complaint or that critique so often. But it's clear that that um, that sense that having a kind of um, media platform uh, made you real or made your uh, troubles more important or your lives more important that was certainly something that um, critics seized on in the 1970s with um, an American Family, the documentary, just one example. Um, you could see in this same period a kind of shift in all kinds of reportage, for example, people pressing boundaries, asking questions they wouldn't have asked before, and people offering information about themselves that they wouldn't um, have before. And this was very much tied up, as you suggest, to um, the prominence of television and broadcast media in um, popular culture. And the kind of... Um, culture of celebrity that was coming to ordinary people, you know, if they opened up their affairs um, to public view. Um, so the Loud family, for example, you know, they um, they are in the first instance uh, subjects of a documentary, but they become uh, media stars in their own right. And this does travel with them for the rest of their lives um, and shapes uh, shapes them um, in, in really interesting ways. So I think one of the reasons um, the uh, documentary kind of captured me is it seemed like the beginnings of our own time in terms of this sense, not that privacy was gone, but that the boundaries around certain kinds of private matters were changing. And in fact, that privacy was valuable, but it could also be commodified in, in new ways. That is, uh, by giving away your privacy, you could earn money, uh, you could earn fame, you could earn fortune. Um, and um, uh, and that too, uh, you know, had certain kinds of um, effects that we wouldn't have anticipated on the public sphere. But the other the other thing too that was really interesting is that 
politicians didn't escape this any longer. Mm-hmm. You know, for forever, we just didn't talk about politicians' private life. And then you have Betty Ford. And she was an unusual first lady to start with. And she was very candid and got more candid as she went along about her about her life. Can you talk about Betty Ford and her influence on how we view, uh, you know, the residents of the White House, for instance? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, Betty Ford, um, again, uh, is an interesting character who um, who I think tells us a lot about how codes around um, public and private were changing in the 1970s in particular. Um, the, the larger political climate was, of course, part of this. Um, uh, the, uh, the kind of new distrust um, of uh, public figures in the wake of Watergate and the Vietnam War um, was central, I think, to uh, politicians themselves believing that they needed to be more um, uh, disclosing um, of personal affairs, of various kinds of foibles, of their tax returns, uh, which is uh, um, something that happens in this period for the first time, the voluntary disclosure of that kind of financial information. So there's a kind of premium on openness um, that is also um, being pried out of people by a a more aggressive uh, press by investigative reporters who were uh, less cozy with the politicians um, that they reported on. Um, so all of this is um, is a kind of backdrop to um, the what what is startling about someone like Betty Ford, uh, who, as a politician's wife, uh, did not play the role of a demure, um, uh, kind of self-effacing, uh, you know, supporter of her husband, but um, broadcast her own political opinions and also um, reveal very personal matters about her uh, family life, about her sex life even, um, and most prominently about her health. Um, she uh, is diagnosed with uh, breast cancer very uh, early on after Ford um, uh, takes over the presidency from Nixon. And, um, and she's, she's very public about her mastectomy. She's photographed in the hospital. She talks about it. And she talks about it um, because she's a frank and candid person, but also because she understands that transparency is the name of the game in politics and maybe in culture too. Uh, and that, um, that she, uh, is, uh, beholden in some ways, uh, as the wife of a politician to, um, to set a new standard of honesty in the public sphere. So she's, she's, um, really, I think a critical figure in thinking about what's happening to political privacy in this period, uh, prior, um, First ladies uh, and politicians themselves had not um, typically uh, been very forthcoming about their um, their health. Um, they hadn't necessarily revealed uh, the kinds of things uh, Betty Ford would reveal, um, and um, and and this is really changing quite rapidly in the 1970s. Um, again, for for both cultural and political reasons. So let's kind of move to today. We've got a situation now where we've got social media. Like I've been thinking about Betty Ford being on Facebook, you know, with with the cameras <laughs> yes. pointing at her and having the video feed going through Facebook. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you see this now. You see people's pictures on Facebook where they're in the hospital and I mean, they've just come out of surgery and somebody posts their picture or a funeral. I mean, just uh, a lot of disclosure on on social media about, uh, you know, depression, alcoholism, divorces. Uh, It's just it's uh, amazing what people are willing to disclose. I don't know if it's a form of therapy for them. 
people feel that, you know, the need to tell somebody and this is the most readily available means um, or, or what it is, but it's very odd for me. I think it's very odd, I, I, different generations. So anyway, but with that social media and reality TV that we have that continues to, you know, grow and continues on. But people in some way are, are, but we have all these other cries that people are concerned about their privacy. You know, uh, it seems like there's a, something something that's not working because people are saying they're concerned about, not so much about government intrusion. I don't think that's a big deal. It's more about, um, because people think of government intrusion into people's privacy, they automatically start thinking, most people think uh, security, you know, the government's trying to make us secure. So, you know, it's checking people out. So most people are more tolerant of that, but it's this uh, um, intrusion by business interest, you know, uh, uh, following you uh, following you around on the web, what you're looking at, what you're buying. Um, we want to have really secure homes. People want to live in gated communities with, you know, walls around them. They want security systems. They're very concerned about all these privacy things, their identities being stolen because it's going to cause havoc. But at the same time, they're more willing to expose more. And you talk about, you talk about that a little bit because I think what you're saying in your book is it's about you controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, uh, privacy, as uh, I think I said early on, uh, you know, is, is this really tricky and um, therefore fascinating subject to study. And it, it's partly um, because it, it, it's, you know, it points in so many different directions all at once. Um, and our impulses, you know, both to be known and recognized and, um, and appreciated by the world, right, come into conflict sometimes with our, our sense of wanting a private realm around ourselves, um, something that can't be breached, that we only, you know, um, that we guard and, and that we let people into or, or don't. Um, and I think this uh, dilemma uh, has become very acute uh, in the late 20th century and early 21st with the, um, you know, vast opportunities for self-broadcasting, what you're talking about with social media and webcams. And um, I, I write in the book about the kind of proliferation of um, memoirs uh, in the 1990s, for example, right? All of these opportunities to to reveal more and more uh, intimate secrets um, and, and, and much less stigma, it should be said, uh, about revealing those secrets, right? That's been part of the cultural change too. Um, at the same time that people have become more worried about other forms of privacy violation. You know, things that at another age, uh, your address, your phone number, your social security number wouldn't have set off privacy alarms in the same way. So instead of um, uh, thinking that people have just given up on privacy or given away privacy, which is something we hear a lot these days, I think it's really just that our sense of um, what's valuable to us in terms of our privacy has just really changed. It's that that um, that line has been redrawn. Um and um, I think, you know, as for our present, uh, the, there are two different strains that have really come together. And it's, it's what we're really feeling right now. One of them is that kind of liberation around certain kinds of personal matters that has allowed people to talk openly, frankly, about um, things, uh, you know, abuse, uh, about depression, mental health, uh, physical health, um, 
adoption, you know, family matters that people wouldn't have um, talked about uh, uh, even to their, uh, sometimes to other family members, much less, uh, you know, friends or, or strangers in another era. There's been that stream. Um, but then there's been this other, which is the ability of um, governments, but more so uh, corporations, commercial data miners, aggregators to um, collect, merge, uh, decipher, analyze um, that same stuff that's going out on social media. Um, and so I think there's we've been on kind of a collision course that um, that no one would have predicted, maybe, uh, between those two impulses, um, the impulse to disclose and the um, ability, technological ability, really, and, and profit uh, motive um, that's driving it um, to learn more and more about uh, individual people. So those two things have come together, and we obviously have not resolved them, but um, that it's, it's, it's been brewing for a long time now, actually. And I think the recent scandals uh, around Equifax and Cambridge Analytica and so forth have really um, maybe helped clarify <laughs> these uh, trends, which are, are really quite long in the making and, um, and maybe have uh, initiated a national discussion um, about what to do about this uh, state of affairs that we're in. So Sarah, what would you like for the reader to take away from your book? What do you think that the, the thing that you would like for them to think about? Mm, that's a it's a good question. After working on this book for a really long time, um, I should be able to come up with an answer to that, I suppose. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, one thing that has really struck me uh, about immersing myself in all of these different debates over privacy um, is that we don't, we won't get anywhere if we simplify the discussion. That is, if we, if we say uh, either that people have just, um, their privacy has just been trampled on, or that they've just don't care about it, and they give it away. Neither of those things is true uh, in its uh, most uh, (laughs) extreme form. Yes, there are all kinds of parties out there interested in violating people's privacy. um, But we have also let them uh, do so because we get benefits uh, from a lot of those um, uh, violations, if you will. Um, And uh, yes, while our standards and norms around what we uh, talk about and what we reveal have changed, that does not at all mean that uh, people have given up on privacy or don't believe they should be entitled uh, to some control or authority over what um, others know about them and can learn about them. So I, I don't think we do our national discussion any service by um, by simplifying those stories. Um, but I also don't want to just say that everything's really complicated. It, it is complicated. Um, but, um, but I think knowing this history may help us uh, see uh, that uh, this is a social question. Uh, it's a political question. It's a, a dilemma uh, that really is an old one, but is, is newly urgent um, about how we make rules around um, what people uh, should uh, be able to know about um, one another. And, um, Put that way, it sounds really simple. Of course, it isn't. But we're going to have to think really carefully uh, as a society about how we want to um, make those rules. And I hope uh, history can guide the discussion. Well, Sarah, thank you. You have been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This segment has produced in cooperation with the Society of U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Lillian Barger.